it's a very unusual case. They were her parents. They were two young, very attractive, very intelligent people who were scholarship students at the University of Virginia, which is the flagship university in the Commonwealth of Virginia. It was a very high-profile case. There was a lot of news coverage, very sensational. Hello and welcome to the third episode of our podcast, The Yen Soaring Case, A New Verdict. So-called crown witnesses, or state witnesses as they are called in the US, are a central aspect of criminal trials. Some of our listeners might already have heard these terms, but what is a crown or state witness all about? It's a person giving testimony at a trial who has committed a crime and hopes to secure advantages for himself by testifying. Hello, Ralph, and welcome. Did I get that right? Hello. Yes, you did. A crown or state witness is a witness for the state, that is, the prosecution. They're witnesses who assist in solving a crime in an area where they have committed an offense themselves. In return, they can expect a reduced sentence that they wouldn't get otherwise. And what's the difference between German and U.S. law as far as state witnesses are concerned? German law strictly regulates in which areas of criminal activity the court may consider using such a witness in return for a lesser sentence. I think that in the U.S., this consideration falls more under the discretionary powers of the prosecution. Here in Germany, we have laws pertaining to the areas of narcotics, terrorism, or also the area of individualized sentencing which concretely state when such an arrangement is allowed or not. I was in the 11th grade, actually finishing up the 11th grade when the crime happened. That was in 1987. And I attended Elizabeth's trial, which turned out to be a plea hearing. And when I first saw Elizabeth walk down the aisle up to the, the stand beside of the judge. She, she was very small. She struck me as timid, and she was also very beautiful. However, when she went, when she testified, uh, then prosecutor Jim Updike questioned her, and her question, her answers to his questions were very sharp. She had a matter-of-fact tone. And I couldn't help but imagine how you could sit there, someone could sit there and testify so matter-of-fact about being an accessory before the fact of the murder of your parents. Growing up as United Methodists, you know, we, did, we didn't think things like that, and you know, it was a godly sin to do something like that. We love our parents, we trust our parents. And to me, that was, that was um, so- somewhat offensive. Um, but again, we were, we were from different cultures. Uh, she spoke with a, a British accent. We're talking about the case of Jens Soering, which is full of curious connections, statements, and entanglements. 
The connection between Elizabeth Haysom and prosecutor Jim Updike is also viewed with great suspicion. Author Bill Sizemore comments. Elizabeth Haysom clearly was the prosecution's star witness in this case. She had agreed to plead guilty as an accessory and to testify against Jens. The problem with this star witness was her credibility. She, I believe, uh, was a pathological liar, a fabulist, uh, someone who just made things up at the drop of a hat. Um, I even wonder whether uh, she knew the difference between uh, truth and fiction. What is your take on Elizabeth Haysom, whom Jen Suring pointed out as the real perpetrator, turning state's evidence against him? Everyone refers to her as the star witness testifying against Jens, which, combined with his confession, was crucial in getting him convicted. Okay, so we have a state witness. This is an abstract term at first. And of course, you must consider the person who testifies in that role. From what we've heard about the contradictory statements Elizabeth made between 1985 and 1990, there is doubt about Elizabeth's credibility, specifically with regard to her testimony, but also generally given her inclination to lie. So those with the authority to decide must evaluate whether her testimony can be taken at face value. What you can't do and what doesn't work is to blindly trust her testimony just because it seems sound and plausible at the time it is given. You have to evaluate the entire context and the entire person. I think the judge could say, okay, we have this testimony, but now we need to verify it by looking at the facts. And if we don't find any, we can't consider her testimony, in which case we can't use her for the purpose of finding the truth. And this, in turn, does not support a claim for Jens's innocence. No, it just supports a decision not to rely on her testimony. If you can say with certainty that she lied, you could, of course, charge her with perjury. But it's different if you just don't know whether she lied or not. Very few witnesses lie deliberately in court. They tell a story they subjectively believe at that moment to be true. And you have to ask yourself, how did this story get into their heads? But regardless of how the story got into their heads, it is incompatible with the actual facts. And it's the court's responsibility to determine if that's the case. Bill Sizemore has studied this case exhaustively and written about it. He criticizes above all the many lies and the versions that Elizabeth told in court. Another point on which Elizabeth told wildly conflicting stories was whether or not she wanted her parents murdered. Again, in her sentencing hearing, she was asked, you didn't want them murdered, did you? And she said, no, sir, I didn't. But then in Jens's trial, and three years later, she was asked again, did you want him to kill your parents? And this time, her, she said, yes, I did. 
And she added, I was much more concerned that he would not kill them than that he would, because the prosecutor said, why? And she said, well, it was the whole idea of Yen's killing anybody was so utterly fantastic. What do you say about that? There are different explanations for that. At the first trial, which involved her directly, it's normal that one would ask for favorable treatment for oneself and make a statement such as, no, that wasn't what I intended. But if one is later called as a witness who is formally obligated to tell the truth, and then one says something different, then there is more to it than meets the eye then that person tends to say whatever she thinks will possibly secure her advantages she wouldn't get if she tells the truth. And if this impression is substantiated, then I stress again what I said earlier. That testimony is not reliable evidence, but is unreliable and won't help me find the truth. It is very difficult for an outsider to imagine that with all these discrepancies in the statements, she should now suddenly have contributed to finding the truth in the trial against Yen Suring. Well, maybe in the first case she just wanted to secure advantages for herself. She might have decided, okay, I'll say whatever works in my favor now, whereas in the second case I'll tell the truth. It's a theoretical possibility. But considering the whole picture, based on what I know, I would not consider this evidence reliable. Elizabeth's role remains controversial to this day. For this podcast, a close friend and fellow prisoner shares with us her own thoughts on this matter. You know, she was a spoiled, rich kid, but she seemed to have herself together. I didn't have a negative impression. I just thought she was kind of quiet. I really believed that she didn't have a hand in her parents' murder, but possibly had kind of manipulated uh, Yen's, even though I'd seen on, you know, her interviews on TV in court about that she had said things about her life would be easier without her parents. What's interesting in this context is the fact that Diane got to know different sides of Elizabeth Hasem and trusted her blindly for a long time. Do you think that this ambivalence surrounding Elizabeth Hasem also adds a certain fascination to the case? The peculiarity, from my point of view, is that it is quite difficult to make final judgments about someone you don't know and can't ask personally. You can't look into their eyes when you ask and she replies. That's what makes the whole thing so damn difficult. But yes, that's certainly a fascinating aspect about this matter, one that led to the conversations and debates we currently have. Were you able to contact Elizabeth and talk to her? Especially after talking to Diane, I contacted a few people, including Elizabeth Hasem. Unfortunately, it was all a dead end. I don't know if she read my message. I found numerous social media and professional profiles of her. That's not hard to do either, since she presents herself with a recent photo. But there was no response to my interview request. There's one thing one has to keep in mind, though. People change. No one is the person he or she was 35 years ago. And what you don't get from anyone you talk to today is the immediate impression they have of that person. I think this is very important. 
And if you just get fragments of statements or hearsay, you get a distorted picture because, like I said, you lack your own impression. For me, it was also a question of professional ethics and professional decency to give her and others, like Terry Wright, for example, the opportunity to express themselves. I think it's extremely important not to be one-sided. And it was clear to me that it is also their right not to react and not to say anything. As a close confidant, there was that friend who helped Elizabeth after her release from prison. She was Elizabeth's contact person in Freedom. Recently released from prison herself, Diane researched the Hasem case, which is apparently common among prisoners. And she had to realize that Elizabeth, the star witness at Yen's trial, had blatantly lied about her new name, about the murders, and about her plans for her newfound freedom. A mutual friend told me, oh, Elizabeth lied to you about her last name. It's really Benedict, which I figured out later was her mother's maiden name, and that she was li still living in Canada. And I couldn't figure out why she would lie to me. I mean, she had asked me not to tell anyone, and I didn't tell anyone her new last name. I figured she would tell people that she wanted to know. And I was really kind of angry about that, <laughs> that she lied to me. And that caused me to really start looking into some other things. And at that point, maybe in the beginning, I might have looked up some things about the crime, but I'd already seen it all on TV. And some of the other programs that were done. But again, I still was brushing it off and feeling the way I did that possibly she sort of manipulated Yens into killing her parents. But then whenever I started looking at it, there were some discrepancies, like the bloody footprint. Is it important for her to represent Jens Zöring as the killer of her parents? Oh, yes. Definitely. Um, she, she used to say that she did not deny culpability as far as, you know, she fled. And she knew they were murdered and that she felt like, you know, he might have done it because of things that she said. But she told me once when he was trying to you know, get released, that he should never be released because she was quite sure that he would kill again. So she was trying to show him as, you know, this murderous monster. A few years before Jens's release in 2019, there was already a debate about a possible release for him. And at that time, Elizabeth also spoke publicly about the case to a newspaper for the first time after all these decades. Why does someone like that break her silence at that moment? It is quite difficult. You can't look inside people. But also the statements that we've just heard. They are all impressions, they are all conclusions, and they are all explanations that everyone arrives at differently. So no conclusions can be drawn by us. It's very, very difficult that the conflict in the relationship which resulted from the crime and which was further solidified between the two by the different verdicts, does not dissolve with the years of imprisonment. That's not necessarily unusual. 
And you have to look at this under the premise that you then reflect and possibly speak out because you believe, for whatever reason, that it would not have been okay if Yen Soaring had been released at that time. Is it a tragedy, then, when the state witness presents herself in the way that Elizabeth did in the Soaring case? It is a tragedy, but one that could have been prevented if the defense attorney had brought the deficiencies in the testimony to light more effectively. If Jens's lawyer had done a better job portraying Elizabeth as untrustworthy and her testimony as unbelievable, then the jury could have formed an opinion on that. And then there would have been no state witness for the prosecution. The fact that this was not done effectively is a tragedy. But this does not mean that a procedural error can be inferred from it. What we are currently analyzing has not been made the focus of the discussion, but rather has only oriented oneself toward the external processes. She was talking about her father's birthday and talking about getting an animal that was killed on the road or something to send to him for his birthday. It was very obvious she hated her parents. Chuck Reed fully knew how much she hated her parents. How valid is she then as a state witness? This, too, can only be considered in the overall context. If one hates one's parents, then one has a vested interest in the fact that the parents are not well and that they may even die in the worst case. And then you must capitalize on that vested interest in evaluating the statement and put it in the overall context. That's just a natural task. A good witness is one who is neutral, who has no vested interest in the outcome of the questioning. And the one with a vested interest should initially be looked at with a more critical eye. And there are techniques and ways to do that, but in sum, it is then up to the prosecutor, the defense attorney, and ultimately the jury to incorporate those very circumstances into their thinking when it comes to the question of guilt. The previous points that we have discussed, I would call them softer factors now. Aside from the different confessions, for example, and the different statements that they use. In Virginia, I also met former FBI agent Stanley Liapakas, and for him, it's very clear. He also investigated all this, along with Richard Hudson. For him, it's clear that her role as a state witness really was exceptional because she worked so closely with prosecutor Jim Updike against Jen Soaring to secure her early release from prison. So what you've got there then is, uh, I would think you would say to yourself, well, they're both guilty to some degree, right? Uh, either committing the actual crime or covering it up or planning it or whatever. So you take the, the weakest link and bring them in to rat out the others, okay? You offer them the best deal. Well, in my opinion, that's what's happened here. They decided they were gonna let Elizabeth under the tree. Unfortunately, they didn't go far enough to verify whether she should be under the tree. They rehearsed her testimony. I, I've never heard, like Chip says, I've never, I'm unaware of any uh, prosecutor or case agent or uh, case officer maintaining contact with a defendant after the fact, like that. Uh, 
but so you have to say to yourself, why why are they so kissy huggy? What, what what's going on here? And and I and I think it's that's the answer is that she helped them put the case together. Well, we are dealing with many assumptions and insinuations here. They may be correct. We talked at the beginning about what a state witness is, and first of all, it is okay under American law if the prosecutor promises something to the witness. But here, the peculiarity is that years before, when Elizabeth herself was convicted, we had a different testimony than in this later trial. But again, it is theoretically possible that she was telling the truth at that moment. So you can't accuse the prosecutor of basically perverting the course of justice by asking someone to commit perjury against their better judgment in return for supporting a possible early parole. That is an insinuation. That may be so, but I cannot see that as compelling for the time being. It cannot be ruled out in purely procedural terms that I, as the prosecutor, say that I need help and I have the impression that you know what happened and that I would like to ask you to tell the truth now. And if you tell the truth and I thus convict the perpetrator, then that should not be to your disadvantage. Then I will work to ensure that you are released from custody earlier than would otherwise be possible. Stan Lepekos has, of course, worked on many cases during his career, and I don't think he is at all concerned with attacking or criticizing the deal between the prosecutor and Elizabeth. He's just noting that it was an unusually close relationship. He also didn't suggest that they were rehearsing the whole thing. Well, of course, there is always a distance that I, as a prosecutor and as a judge, must ultimately maintain from the parties involved, including the witnesses, especially in the preliminary stages, no witness tampering. If that was the case, of course, that is objectionable, no question about that. But once again, the fact that this procedural tool was used must first be assessed in a completely neutral manner. No one criticizes that in particular. Former Sheriff Chip Harding tells me about his investigation and experience in the Soaring Hasem case. Yeah, this letter that um Jim Updike, who was the prosecutor at the time, he's now the judge down there, probably one of the most powerful people in Bedford County, wrote on February the 15th, 1991, shortly after Yenza's conviction. Uh, he'd received a letter from Elizabeth Hasem. He, he writes the end of his, this lengthy letter back to her. As I conclude this letter, I'm reminded of something I understand Benjamin Franklin once wrote to a friend that being he who apologized for not having time to write a shorter letter, despite the hurried fashion in which I dictated this letter, I hope it finds you in good health. And as I stated previously, I very much enjoy receiving your letters and hope will you continue to write me. I have never heard a prosecutor remaining in a, in a friendship contact with someone that's been convicted of participating in a homicide. Not saying it hadn't happened. But that then goes to where he said, and I think it was at her parole, first parole hearing, that she took responsibility for her involvement 
and was very helpful to him to the point that he let her put the case together for him. So that, I mean, I don't think Yen Soren had a chance. Of course, it seems absolutely unnatural that you maintain a close bond with the witness, in this case with Elizabeth afterward, no question at all. However, it is part of the business to make it clear to the parole board how important Elizabeth's contribution to Jens's conviction was. That is normal. Only the correspondence described here and the contents are very unusual, I would almost say, unnatural. I would still like to talk about the credibility itself. In this case, there is always this talk about the motive for the crime, namely sexual abuse by her mother. What role do psychological opinions play? It's about the credibility of the statement and the credibility of people. In essence, it boils down to the testimony, which must be credible, but that is always in correlation to the personality. And as a rule, the evaluation of this personality, whether he or she is able to give credible testimony, is often accompanied by expert opinions. However, this applies to issues where the judge cannot do so himself. We do that in Germany with child witnesses, for example. But we don't usually do it with adult witnesses, where we have no indications of psychological problems. This means that even a state witness would not be examined psychiatrically or psychologically in Germany, but we judges can assess this independently based on our training and experience. What about credibility? especially against the background of drug abuse, which Elizabeth is repeatedly accused of, also, among other things, on the night of the crime. Yes, that is an important matter. Here, too, of course, we need to know how intense the abuse is, how strong the dependency was, and what was the effect on the personality, even a personality disorder. And then it is also possible that one's own judicial assessment is not sufficient, but that psychiatric help is used. However, this is not a psychological expert opinion, but a psychiatric expert opinion concerning the personality disorder. Of course, it is also a speculation by the people I talk to. Some are sure, based on their perception, that Elizabeth figured out very early on that she could have led Jens Suring into this role of the potential murderer of her parents. Bill Sizemore says... I'm not sure exactly uh, when she first fingered Jens as the killer. I presume it was during the interviews, the police interviews in London after, after they were caught. But of course, this was some time after, this was some months after the murders. So yes, it it's, certainly is possible that uh, she came up with that story after the fact, that it was, you know, that she should blame Jens for the murders. It's possible. Jens was under the mistaken belief that because he was the son of a German diplomat, diplomat, that he would get a much lighter sentence uh, in Germany, uh, that he would serve no more than perhaps a couple of years, perhaps five. After many decades, there is also a relatively widespread picture of the state witness Elizabeth Hasem, 
That picture is shared by private individuals and investigators, and by all who look at this very critically and in depth at this point. This includes those who also look at Jens very critically. Tammy Martin says the following about this. She was able to manipulate him, yes. She was able to manipulate him. She being the popular girl and him, as everyone portrays him, as the nerd. That that may have been so. I, I think she lured him. She lured him in to do or help her do or be her encourager um, or play some part in, in this, this, you know, gruesome crime that happened. It is quite conceivable that she had significantly more experience, that she was simply the more adult in quotation marks. However, she also had the handicaps of drug addiction and psychological problems. And she had the possibility of manipulating Jens, who met his first girlfriend at that time, didn't want to lose her, and on top of that, was a bit younger than her. Only the question is, how far can she manipulate him? And it takes quite a bit to manipulate someone so that they kill their parents. I can manipulate someone into not doing things. For example, to stop playing soccer and instead pursuing my hobbies and many other things as well. But it's incredibly difficult in such a short period of time to manipulate a person so that he strays from his path and carries out such a brutal act. At least, that is not necessarily the rule. Elizabeth, as a state witness, to me, it sounds like so many other points that it would be wise, also for Jens Suring, to let the matter rest at some point. Yes, we can do that. But I think we would all agree that Elizabeth Hasem, as a state witness, was not a viable, reliable piece of evidence. But that was not sufficiently established during the trial, and that's why the wrong conclusions were drawn. But procedurally, that's fine. And you can't turn the wheel back at that point. To ask the question, what if she had been removed? I don't have enough detailed knowledge, but if I understood the prosecutor correctly, he probably wouldn't have been able to convict Yen Soaring without Elizabeth. So if the right conclusions had been drawn about Elizabeth's reliability, and if she had been removed from the case, the jury probably wouldn't have reached the guilty verdict unanimously. I talked to Diane about her motivation. Why is she talking about Elizabeth today? And what does she want to reveal to the public? Well, people should be aware that she obviously can come off as a very truthful person, but she obviously continues to lie very well. This was the third episode of our podcast, The Case Against Jens Soaring, A New Verdict. We discussed the role of the state witness in the criminal trial and the credibility of the state witness Elizabeth Heisen in the trial against Jens Soaring. In 1990, she was the star in the trial against him. Can you believe a state witness who makes a deal with the prosecutor? In the next episode, the focus is on DNA and what information the DNA traces found at the scene of the murders provide about Jen Soaring as a possible perpetrator. Is missing DNA at the crime scene information about the absence of a suspect? Subscribe to the podcast and never miss a thing. Thanks for listening. You're Daniela Hillers. <laughs>